take a break from Revelation probably until after the first of the year. We'll pick up in verse 20, or chapter 20, uh, after the first of the year. This will give you some time. You can go back, catch up. They're on Facebook. They're also on Sermon Audio in the past, so you can go back and catch up on where we are. But uh, yesterday I wrote uh, the article for the newsletter, and it got me to thinking about some things. I'd already been thinking along these lines anyway about taking a break and doing some things uh, with Christmas and focusing on, his, on Christ's birth and, 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 and some things with that leading up to Christmas. But, uh, and then, of course, next week is communion. Everything we do will be focused on communion. So figured right now was a good time to just sort of take a book break in the book of Revelation. And what I want to do this morning is just sort of start our thinking, getting our thinking ready and geared up um, for Christmas and the reason for the season. I, I suspect, I don't know this for sure, just given what, you know, what just happened leading up to Thanksgiving uh, and all the added pressures of the virus and the added pressures of, you know, the experts telling us what we can and can't do and so forth, I would imagine Christmas and the virus seems to be ramping up, Right. So I would imagine Christmas, there's going to be even more of that. I mean, how are we going to get out and shop? How are we going to do this and all these kinds of things, not to mention the family gatherings again. So I I just felt like there's probably going to be added pressures, added things that can can sort of sway our thinking, added uh, pressures that can divert our thinking away from why we set aside this time of year and celebrate the birth of our Savior and uh, so I, I wanted to just start, it, start that process of getting our thinking geared in that way and oriented towards that. Um, so that's why the break. It's, it's, it's take a break in the book of Revelation. And this morning I want to start with thinking about just promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. Because this is where it all really starts. And when you think about promise and fulfillment, right? There's a promise. Promises are great. Promises are wonderful. But if there's no fulfillment, if there's no carrying out of those promises, they're just empty promises, right? They're just empty promises. What good are empty promises, right? If you're going to make a promise, then there needs to be some type of fulfillment. The Bible uses the language, and the Bible puts relationships, especially God's relationship with us, and then our relationship with each other. It uses the language of covenant, though. There are covenants. Covenants are made. A covenant is just simply an agreement between two or more people. It's all a covenant is. A covenant is not a contract. You know, we think of a contract, a legal binding contract. And two people come together, they have their own self-interest involved. And in a contract, it's, it's, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not, uh, in a contract, if one person breaks the contract, then the contract's over, they walk away from it, and it's over and done, and forgotten. A covenant's not like a contract. When we see covenants in the Bible, and again, this is the basis of God's relationship with his people. We see all kinds of covenants, but when we see a covenant in the Bible, there's a very strong moral center to a covenant. And it's not just about two people seeking their own self-interest, as in a contract, some type of business contract or a legal contract. It's, it's about us. A covenant is about us. A covenant is about identity. And here's the thing. In a covenant, when one party breaks part of the covenant, 
And they would lay out the obligations of the covenant, similar to a contract. They would lay out the obligations of the covenant. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. And if you don't live up to it, then this is what's going to happen. And if I don't live up to it, then this is what's going to happen. But normally in a covenant, in a covenant relationship, if one party, let's say Monty and I enter into a covenant. Let's say we're in a contract. We've got lawyers He's got his team of lawyers, i got my team of lawyers, and he's hidden clauses in the contract, I've hidden clauses in the contract, and we sign that contract, and I break the contract, Monty tears the contract up and says, okay, deal over, it's off. We no longer have a relationship. If Monty and I make a covenant, and we lay out the arrangements of the covenant, and we say, we are covenanting together, And here are the things that you're going to do, and here are the things that I'm going to do, and so forth. And it's spelled out. And if it doesn't happen, then here's what's going to happen, and so forth. And let's just say in a covenant agreement, in a covenant arrangement, I break the covenant. Monty's still under obligation to keep and fulfill his covenant responsibilities. It's not like a contract. You tear it up and walk away. Covenants were deeper. Covenants were about relationships. Covenants were about identity. And this is the language that the Bible uses. God makes covenants, and we see them throughout all of the Scripture. What's what's interesting is that when we look at these covenants, the covenant keeper is always God. The covenant breaker is always man. We're the ones always breaking the covenants. And you go through and look from the very beginning... All the way through, man's the covenant breaker. God's the covenant keeper. He is the faithful covenant keeper. And in those covenants, he makes some wonderful, beautiful promises. Uh, Turn to Genesis 15. Find Genesis 4, Genesis 3 and 4. That's where we're going to be in just a second. But let me show you this in Genesis 15. There's a covenant that God makes with Abraham. And it followed pretty typically the way covenants usually were entered into and ratified and so forth. But in Genesis, Genesis 15, God makes this covenant with Abram. In Genesis 15:1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. This was the basis. God had promised Abraham, you're going to have a seed. There's going to be a child. And the covenant that he made and the relationship that he entered into in Genesis chapter 12, you're going to be blessed, Abraham. And you're going to, your children are going to be as the sand of the sea. And you're going to be blessed. And all the nations are going to be blessed by you. And there's going to be this seed. And so we get to 15 and Abram's like, hey, it's been a while. What about this child? What about the child that you promised? And so in this chapter 15, God reminds Abram and enters into this covenant with him. And look down at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur, the Chaldeans. This is where Abraham was from. To give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I need to know. You are making a promise. You are entering into a covenant and an agreement with me. But Abraham said, I need some assurances here. And he said to him, this is what God did. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. That's a pretty gruesome sight, isn't it? 
Just imagine, you show up to a contract signing and you're there at the table and some guy whips out an animal and cuts it in half right on the table, spreads the pieces together and says, now let's covenant together. You probably run, don't you? But this is the way covenants were ratified. So what God's doing is he takes the heifer, he cuts the heifer in half. The two sides are, are spread apart so that you could walk between the two parts. And this is usually what would happen. Both parties would walk between the two parts. And ratifying the covenant this way, what they were saying in essence is this. If I don't live up to the covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. In other words, let me be cut apart. So it's this pledge, it's this agreement, it's this relationship that they're entering into. And what's interesting here is God's doing this. So, God takes the heifer, it's split in two, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. The sun's going down. Abraham gets sleepy. And behold, dreadful and darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth, gen- fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So in other words, Abraham, I'm going to keep this covenant. You, yes, everything I've said to you is going to happen. And notice verse 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Abraham didn't pass between the pieces. And normally in a covenant arrangement, both parties would. Abraham didn't. God did. What God was saying to Abraham here is, I am the covenant keeper. I will keep this covenant. You want assurance, Abraham? The writer of Hebrews says this. He puts it this way. When God's talking about the covenant and he's making an oath and he's making the promises in the new covenant, he says God couldn't swear by anybody greater. So who did he swear by? Himself. This is exactly what he's doing with Abraham. Abraham, you want assurances? You know who I am? You know who I am? That's your assurance. And Abraham... I'm passing through the pieces. In essence, God is saying, in a sense, if I don't fulfill this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. Now, what's interesting is, very next chapter, the very next chapter, Sarah becomes so impatient about the promised seed to come, and what do her and Abraham do? They cook up this scheme with Hagar. See, the very next chapter, they're Abraham. See, that man is the covenant breaker. This is why God says, this covenant doesn't depend on you, Abraham. If it depended on you, it wouldn't happen. It's all on me. So that's, that's the idea of a covenant relationship. It's not a contract. It's a covenant relationship. There's a promise that's made, and then there's a promise that's fulfilled. And it's all about relationships here. It's all about relationship. One thing God promises very early on is He promises to send a Savior. Right? We see this very early on in Scripture. He promises to send a Savior. Titus says this. Paul, Paul writing to Titus, he says that talking about how 
God has revealed His truth and so forth in the hopes of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. He promised before the ages began. Usually the language Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1, when he's talking about the election, and then he's talking about the election of God's people, he says, before the foundation of the world. We see that phrase from time to time. The lamb slain when? We saw this in Revelation, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before anything was laid, emphasizing the eternal idea, the eternity, eternity past of this decision. And yet what we read here, what we see him saying in Titus, is before the ages began. The phrase occurs again in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I think maybe the hint to this is that it's not before the foundation of the world, but before the ages began. When would that be? Possibly go all the way back to Genesis and go back to the creation, right? I mean, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation of everything that exists. Genesis chapter 3, there's a fall. The fall happens, sin enters into God's creation, it makes a total mess of everything. And after all this has happened, God places curse, he he places curse in uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then verse 15, here comes a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman. We've looked at this before. This is Genesis 3.15 is called sometimes the first preaching of the gospel. The very first preaching of the gospel. But notice this, here's the first thing that God says. Here's the first promise that he says. I'm going to put enmity, hostility, hatred. There's going to be hatred between you, between the serpent, between Satan and the woman. Now, remember in the book of Revelation, going all the way back to Revelation chapter 12, and this war, and this Satan's cast out of heaven, he's thrown into the earth. And what does he immediately begin to do? He goes after the woman. Genesis 12, he goes after her offspring. He tries to kill the child. He tries to kill Christ. He can't do that. And so in all of that symbolic language of Revelation 12, who's he after now? He's after us as believers. That's why when we read in Peter, he's like a roaring lion. He's roaming the earth seeking whom he may devour. And this is what he's going to do. But here's the good thing, because when we get to Revelation 20, We've already seen he's judged and it's over, but when we get to Revelation 20, there's a binding that happens. And John says he can't deceive the nations anymore for a short while. So there's this hostility, this hatred, and this is what God says. This is what's going to happen. And notice, I will put this enmity between you and the woman. I'm going to put this between you and the woman. Well, it's not long after this that we see this begin to play out. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel. Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. We're going to come back to that phrase in just a second. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord the offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering, he had no regard. You know what happens, right? What happens? Cain does what? 
Kills his brother. Kills his brother. Enmity. Hatred. You see, Genesis 3, the sin is against God. Their rebellion is against God. Sin enters the picture. And then we start to see sin permeate every relationship. All the relationships. And here we see the murder. The Cain kills his brother. Look at, uh, look at verse 25. Chapter 4, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Why did she need another offspring? You see what she says next? For Cain did what? Cain killed him. Cain killed him. Hostility? Hatred, all because of the entrance of sin. And then what happens? We see murder. We see a brother kill his brother. We see a brother kill his brother. Now, here's the next thing about Genesis 3.15. All right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, literally crush He's going to crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. If someone's head's crushed, that's a death blow, right? So in other words, what this one who's to come, he's going to deal a death blow to you. He's going to crush your head. You're just going to bruise his heel. In other words, just like a flesh wound. Now, you go through and you look at the Old Testament talking about and predicting the coming of the Messiah and his death, and then you get to the New Testament and the explanations that we get, particularly with the Apostle Paul, and you go to the book of Colossians, and there Paul specifically says that what Satan, that what happened to Satan when Christ died on the cross was that he was defeated. He defeated him. He disarmed him. At the cross, Christ dealt Satan a death blow. His resurrection, his ascension. You remember again, we're in that betrothal period. You remember talking last week about the already and the not yet. What's not yet is he's not been fine, he's not been fully bound and cast into the lake of fire yet. But he's been defeated. He's been defeated. There's not a battle between two equals here. So he will, deal, he, he will crush your head, you're going to bruise his heel. That's all the cross was, really, in a sense, was a flesh wound. In the grand cosmic scheme of things, in this grand spiritual war, the cross was ugly, horrible, he shed his blood, he died. But, but compared to what happened to Satan, the death blow, it was just a flesh wound. So... Stay with me here. You see, you see promise of enmity, hostility, hatred, and then we see fulfillment. I mean, immediately we see fulfillment, right? Murder. Cain kills his brother. And then sin plays out from there. I mean, all sorts of horrible things happen, and we've been living in it ever since, right? Then here comes the second promise in 315 of this one who's to come. This seed who's to come, he's going to crush the head of Satan, and you're going to bruise his heel. Now here's the interesting thing when we go back to Genesis 4 verse 1. Because in Genesis 4 verse 1, go back to verse 1. This is what we read again. Now Adam knew Eve his wife. And she conceived 
and bore Cain. So, Adam and Eve, in the context of marriage, God had put them together, right? God had performed the first marriage. Be fruitful in what? Multiply. Sin has entered the picture. Sin has made a mess of things. And now we're told that Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and she had a son. Now, this is the interesting question. What did Eve really think of the son? What did she really think of this son? Is there anything that she says here? Does it give us a hint that she fully believed Genesis 3.15? There's a coming one. The seed's coming. And guess what? It's going to be a man. It's going to be human. I think there is. I think there is. Listen to the language. She bore, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. If you look at in your translations, depending on which English translation you have, sometimes words are in italics. Have you ever run across that? You got words, and then all of a sudden you got these words in italics. What do they mean when the words are in italics? Most of the time, when you see words in italics, it means that it was not in the original language. That the English translators used those words to help smooth out the translation. It's impossible to go straight from Hebrew to English and from Greek to English. And, and, and you can follow it along in some places, but it gets very rough. For one thing, in Greek, word order means nothing. In English, word order means everything. In Greek, you can have the subject of the sentence, the last word of the sentence. In Greek, you can have the verb at the first. I mean, so it's, it, it, word order means nothing. So when it comes to translation, there are places where when you translate it into another language, sometimes you have to use that language and try to smooth out the translation so it makes sense. Now, it doesn't take any way, anything away from the Word of God. I think that's probably what's happened here. Because when you read, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, it could read this way. The Hebrew could read this way. I have gotten a man, the Lord. Now, I could read that way. Martin Luther thought it read that way. Luther said that what Eve is doing is she's rejoicing and praising God for the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 right then. In Eve's mind, Luther said, she thought she had given birth to the promised seed. Now that's one way the Hebrew could be taken. There are others who say, well, it's not, it, it's, it's not so much that literal because there, there, there seems to be, and, and, and another way that the Hebrew can be taken is that I've, I've gotten a man by the Lord or of the Lord. At the very least, I think this is what's happening. Now, Luther may not be right in saying that Eve thought she had given birth to the seed and that the promise had been fulfilled right then. But I think she thinks this. I think she thinks at the very least... The process has started. 
Because it's going to be human, right? It's going to be a man. The seed's going to come from her. It's the seed of the woman. That's what it says. In, in, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So at the very least, in Eve's mind, she starts this rejoicing because the process has started. It's a mess. It's a mess. I mean, Cain, here he is, and sin's entered the picture, and then shortly after this, you know, we, we see him killing his brother. And then go to uh, chapter 4, verse 25. When all this has happened and all, of, all, the, all the murder has taken place, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed, that's what Seth means, the appointed one. God has appointed for me another offspring. He's appointed for me another seed. Another seed. Another offspring. Instead of Abel. Why? For Cain killed him. And then we see Seth also bore a son, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then here we come with, a, with, a, with this list of gen, gen, uh, this genealogical list that runs us straight to Noah. I think at the very least, in Eve's mind, what she is conceiving and what she's thinking is sin. They imagine Adam and Eve seeing sin come into God's creation. The very first time they would have been the only human beings who would have ever known what it was like to be in a perfect environment without sin, a sinless environment. And imagine how they must have felt, what they must have seen in creation when all of a sudden it was gone and creation was plunged into sin. Imagine what's going on in her mind. The sense of loss. And then here comes a promise. I promise you a Savior's coming. And then she gives birth. And she rejoices. It's very clear that what she's doing is rejoicing. And I think again at the very least she's rejoicing that the process has started. The process has started. God's made covenant. God's going to keep His promise. He's going to keep His promise. In the midst of even all of this, at this, sin and so forth, He's going to keep His promise. What are we celebrating when we celebrate Christmas? We're celebrating the birth of the seed. Because see, here's what happened. Unbeknownst to Eve, she was wrong. If she thought it was the Lord, she was wrong. She missed it. But at least what we see is her faith and trust in what God had promised, right? He's going to do it. And I believe He's going to do it. And so what we celebrate in the birth of Christ, and this is where we need to start gearing our minds and, and getting our minds prepared and start thinking about these things, is that unbeknownst to Eve, what would happen would be thousands and thousands of years, right? A whole history that happens that unfolds, the creation of a nation, the history of that nation. And then, unbeknownst to Eve, there would be hints and promises and more promises of a, of a Messiah, the Savior to come. And then the prophets would come on the scene. And what would they do? They would talk about the coming of the Messiah. And they would give certain information about the coming one. And, and the picture would become a little bit clearer, a little bit clearer, all the way to the point to where we finally get to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1... This is what we read. 
Very simple statement. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. And then what does Matthew do? He shows us the events of the birth. Luke shows us the same thing. All those thousands of years from the time when when that promise is made in Genesis 3.15, Savior's coming, Eve gives birth to Cain, at the very least again, she's rejoicing. The process has started. The line through which the Messiah is coming, the line through which the Savior is coming, it started. And if she did think she had given birth to the seed, to the Savior, she was mistaken. Thousands of years later, promises made, prophets preaching, And then all of a sudden, at the right time, Paul tells us, God in the fullness of time, and then we open the pages of the New Testament and we read now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. It finally came. You wonder why there was such rejoicing at the birth of Christ? You wonder why it was presented in such a way to us in the Scriptures and we see this great celebration, this great rejoicing, I mean, it's a joyous time. It is a time of rejoicing. It's a time of celebration. We talk about, you know, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, right? Did he come to bring peace? Yeah, he did come to bring peace. But at the heart of the peace that he came to bring was a peace between our hearts and God. See, it's one thing to rejoice and it's one thing to talk about, you know, the peace and all of this, and and, and look at it in a cultural sense. And it's so easy to get so clouded right now about, you know, all the things that are going on from the virus, elections, riots. I mean, who who knows who else is going to pop up between now and next week, right? Who knows what else is going to happen? You know, we've said this before. There are thousands of other viruses out there. We don't know anything about them. Who knows what other group's going to pop off next week? And if our hope and trust and, our, and, and we think that our rejoicing in this time of year is a rejoicing in that, in, in, in material things, in the world and so forth, we're sadly mistaken. We'll be so disappointed, right? I mean, time and time and time again, if our trust and rejoicing is in man, man's a covenant breaker. He's a covenant breaker. You remember several years ago, ago there was the movement Promise Keepers? There are some good people involved in Promise Keepers, and they did some really good things, but I always thought at the time, you know, really an appropriate name with that, it should be Promise Breakers. Because that's what we are. By nature, we're covenant breakers. By nature, we're promise breakers. And what we need is the grace of God in Christ. He's the true covenant keeper. He's the true promise keeper. And he kept his word. Promise made, fulfilled. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. I need a Savior. I need one who would come and put an end to this hostility. Right? That's what we need and that's what we celebrate. The one who came to put an end to this hostility, this hatred, this enmity. But it's not a hatred and a hostility, again, that's just outward, that's just culturally. That's bad enough. And yeah, that's part of it. As, a, as we live out the gospel, I think that changes as well. But here's the real root of it. It is my own heart. 
You see, the enmity that was between me, my heart, and God. I needed the seed. I needed a Savior who would come put an end to that. And that's exactly what He did. Go to Matthew just a second. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Because at the heart of its rejoicing, if we are truly going to rejoice in this, all right, and if we're really going to have this sense of rejoicing in this joyous festive uh, celebration of the birth of Christ, and there's going to be true rejoicing, then we need to understand just how bad it really is. Just how bad it really is. And we need to understand just where the root of the problem really lies. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. After Jesus talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, He begins to talk about fruit and the fruit of a good life and so forth. And this is what He says in verse 33. Matthew chapter 12 verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, right? I mean, it stands to reason. You see apples on a tree, it's a what? It's an apple tree. You don't see apples on a tree and say, oh, I think that's a pecan tree. You're mistaken. So, the tree is known by its fruit. Then notice what he says. You brood of vipers. He's speaking to the religious leaders. How could you speak good when you were evil? When you were evil. Well, what makes them evil? Oh, they do bad things, right? You're evil because you do evil things. You're a sinner because you sin. If you didn't sin, this is the logic of the world, if you didn't sin, you wouldn't be a sinner. If you don't do evil things, you're not what? Evil. That's the thinking of the world. But what Jesus is about to do, now remember, he's speaking to religious people. He's not speaking to pagans, he's speaking to religious people. You, when you are evil, for out of the abundance of the, what? Heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of, the, out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment... We'll get to that in Revelation uh, 20 and 21 and so forth. On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Turn over to chapter 15. He picks up this theme again later on. In chapter 15, verse 10. This is what he says. And when he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. What does defile in them? But what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Hey, look man, you just tick those people off. You can't be walking around saying those kinds of things and this kind of crowd. I mean, these people are mad. You, you've offended them. You, you probably need to go and apologize. You know, if it were today, they'd probably be coming to him and saying, hey, look, man, you're not woke enough. And you know what? They're fixing to cancel you out, man. They're fixing to cancel you out, right? So this is, this is the sense of what they're doing. He says, look, you, you've offended them. And uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? 
What does Jesus say? Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. That's a great definition of our culture right now. It is the blind leading the blind. And guess where we're about to end up? In a pit. But there's a gracious God. Okay? So Jesus doesn't hold any punches. He doesn't pull back. He doesn't say, oh man, I'm sorry. Hey Peter, run down there and get them, bring them over. Let's fix them a meal. Let's apologize. No, Jesus says, leave them alone. They're blind. Verse 15, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us then. I think this may have been what was really behind it. Hey, you, you ticked them off. Really what was behind it, we don't have a clue what you just said. <laughs> you know? You made them mad, and we don't know what you're talking about. And so what does he do? He said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I don't think I have to explain that. I don't think I need to go into explanation of what happens, the bodily functions and all that, right? You know what happens. Verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the what? You see it? What makes them evil? Their heart. What makes me a sinner? My heart. It's a sinful heart. It's a sinful heart. But it's what proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come... I don't think this list is exhaustive here, but out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile anybody. Come on, guys, your your focus is in the wrong place. By the way, you notice this out of the heart come murder? What did Cain do? Murdered. Where did that come from? His environment? Oh, well, if Cain would have been in a better environment. Maybe Eve wasn't a very good mother. Maybe Adam just wasn't a good father. Maybe if they, if, 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 if maybe they were in a different economic situation. Maybe they lived in a better neighborhood. You, you see, that's been going around forever, hasn't it? It's the environment that makes us do these things. No, it's not. It's the heart that makes us do these things. Cain's heart was evil. And then we see the ungodly line of Cain play out. He kills his brother, and God, in His grace, restores to Adam and Eve, Seth, another son, seed, who, by the way, when you look at Luke's genealogy, who starts and goes all the way to Adam, guess who's there? Seth. The process started. The process continued. God bringing about the fulfillment of this promise of the one who's to come. And what is he going to come do? Yeah, he's going to bring peace. Yeah, he's going to do all that. But this babe that we celebrate that's born, what does he do? He comes and he deals with my sinful heart. That's first and foremost. I need a king to come and conquer my sinful heart. And he did it. He did it. Listen to James just a second. This is what James says. James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man 
who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted, each person is swayed, each person is pulled away when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Where does that come from? It comes from the heart, doesn't it? How is it that I end up sinning? Because my wife is bad? I got a bad boss. If I just had a better job, I wouldn't sin as much. How is it that I end up sinning? It's because my heart. I'm lured. It's enticed. Something is dangled there. And guess who it's dangled by? Right? It's Satan. It's, it's enticed. It's dangled there. He's lured, enticed by his own desire. And then James says, when desire has... It has when, when desire, the des, then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, guess what it brings? Death. That's how it happens. It happens within the heart. And the next thing you know, the mind, the heart, and all of a sudden, then I'm doing it. That's the process. But we think of it in reverse order. I go do it, and that makes me bad. Well, what makes me bad is I'm born into this world with a sinful heart, a rebellious heart, dead in sins and trespasses. Out of the heart come all of this. Out of the heart flows all of this. You see, this is, this is the thing. If we're going to rejoice at the birth of a Savior, and we're truly going to rejoice, then we need to be rejoicing about the right thing. We need to be rejoicing that the Savior came, was promised, He comes... He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross, was raised the third day, ascended into heaven. He will reappear at some point. But He came and what He defeated, He defeated my sinful heart. And He called me to Himself. Come. That's what He says, right? Come. Man can't do that. Only a covenant-keeping God. So as we enter into this time of year, we enter into this season, let's just start getting our thinking geared, our thinking oriented, our thinking right. We are celebrating the birth of a Savior who came to save His people from their, what? Sins. Not some political leader. You know, not some sage out there wandering around in the desert teaching, you know, peace, love, and good times and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. No, we came. He's Savior. He came. He knew exactly what He came to do. He did it. He accomplished it. It was promised. It was fulfilled. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice and the fact that we have a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the only way to truly rejoice and understand that is first, you've got to be a believer, right? I mean, unbelievers don't do this. Unbelievers celebrate everything else. They want to get rid of Christ and keep all the other stuff. I mean, that's what unbelievers want to do. They, they, they rejoice over, you know, the craziest things. As a believer, at heart, I'm rejoicing because a Savior came and saved me from myself. And saved me from my sin.
Then we can sing rejoice, right? Rejoice, rejoice, all that. So let's get our thinking straight. The pressure's coming. It's coming. And it's going to be greater. It's going to hit us in ways that we haven't even thought about this year. It's coming to distract us and pull us away from what this time of year is all about. You see Him? You see Christ? There He is. There He is. There He is. Just turn to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You. As we look into Your Word and we see